listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning again. If you have a Bible, open it to 2 Peter chapter 1. We continue our series through 2 Peter. We're in chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 12 through 15 in just a moment. If you are visiting with us for the first time today or for the first time in a long time, it's our custom to just work through books of the Bible. And a few weeks ago, we started 2 Peter, and we find ourselves midway through chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 12 through 15. Um, Don't worry, you're not behind. You'll get the sense of the point of the letter and the point of the passage as we get into explaining this text. As you're finding 2 Peter... Let me uh, mention to you and ask you to pray for, in fact, I will lead us in prayer for a dear family in the church. It just happened uh, uh, a few weeks ago, we were praying for a dear family in the church and the tragic loss of their young grandchild. Well, tragedy has struck again, sadly, um, in the life of Crosspoint, Mike and Robin Higgins, a dear family that have been members of the church for some time. Their 29-year-old son, Tyler, unexpectedly passed away of some sort of cardiac event on Friday morning. And Tyler was uh, just a dear brother. He was the youth pastor at another church here in town. And previous to that, he was a youth pastor at a church in Alabama and had a real fruitful and successful ministry there. And then came back home a year and a half ago or so to be closer to family his wife, Sarah, is also from Columbus. They were married, I don't know, four or five years ago. I, I'm not, I can't remember. They did not have any children, but they came back here to be closer to family, and he was on staff at Hilton Avenue Community Church, which used to be Waldrop Memorial Baptist Church. And very unexpectedly and tragically, Tyler passed away uh, Friday morning. And so we want to pray for Mike and Robin Um, Obviously, their world has been turned upside down, and they are just dear, dear saints and members of this church, and uh, when part of our body hurts, we all hurt. We mourn with those who mourn, and so once again, we come just asking the Lord to be gracious in the face of really just um, unspeakable grief that yet another family in our church is going through, so... Um, Would you pray with me as I lead us in prayer for Mike and Robin? Um, Tyler knew the Lord, and so he's with the Lord now. But there will be ache and there will be pain um, for years and years. It will never go away until we see Jesus face to face for this dear family. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us and help this family. Lord, we thank you for how good and gracious you are to your people. Lord, We do not see clearly on this side of eternity. We look through a mirror dimly. Our view is foggy. It's it's shrouded by our own sin, by a broken world, by our own human frailty. And we admit we do not understand why, again, we don't understand why this dear young life, this dear young son was taken so early. But we confess again with Job where he says that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Father, I pray that you would be the God of all comfort for Mike and Robin. 
Thank you for the way that they have loved and raised their son to the point where he knew you and served you. We thank you for the many, many lives through the years that Tyler has reached and encouraged in the gospel through his ministry at various churches. Lord, as this hole now will be in Mike and Robin's heart, Lord, we pray that you would fill it with your grace and with your comfort. And over time, Lord, as you heal, we pray that you would give perspective. We long for that day, for the resurrection of all of your people, when every, every wrong will be made right, every sad thing will be finally and fully made right. And we will see on that day your wise and good and precious purposes. Until then, Lord, we need help, and this dear family needs help. Lord, comfort Mike and Robin. Comfort Tyler's widow, Sarah. Comfort his church, the one in Alabama that is grieving, and the one here, and the many young people that he impacted. And comfort this body, Lord, as we again deal with sadness in our church. Lord, bless them, I pray. And now as we turn our attention to your word, Lord, help us encourage your people. This isn't just another Sunday morning. We are here. We're gathered. We need to hear from you. Lord, we need you to speak to us. We need you to encourage us. We need to be convicted. We need to be chastened. We need to be formed more into the image of Christ. And there are people in this room who don't know Jesus. And tomorrow is not promised. And they need today, they need to hear the good news. And they need to turn from trusting in themselves. And they need to put their hope in Jesus. Nothing else matters in comparison. And so, Lord, help us. Help us now to think deeply and be encouraged and drink from the well of your word. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15 is a bit of a transition in this letter. Peter has been reminding his readers about the things that he wants to see in them, the things that they need to remember, that they need to remember the gospel, that they need to remember that God has given them everything that they need for life and godliness. And we need to remember that as well. This word is written to us as well. And he's telling them that they don't just need to know these things, but they need to actually put them into practice. And, and Peter's point the last two Sundays that we've looked at verses 3 through 11 has been that we need to make every effort to not just know good truth about God, but to actually cause it to impact our lives. And we need to add to our knowledge these qualities of, of godliness and effort. And we need to be diligent to make our calling and election sure, he ends on in verse 10. And now in verse 12 through 15, it's as if there's a bit of a transition, and Peter is going to give us a little bit of a glimpse into his heart for ministry. You can kind of sum Peter's two letters up in this way. First Peter is written really to encourage the saints that he's writing to about all of the troubles and trials that they're facing from the outside in this pagan world that they live in. And he's writing to these people to prepare them for persecution from the Roman Empire. In this second letter, Peter is wanting them to remember the good doctrine that he and the other apostles taught because the threat isn't so much outside of the church, meaning the emperor of Rome who will persecute Christians years shortly after Peter writes these letters, but the threat more is 
threats within the church, false teachers. And really the heart of the letter is chapter 2, where Peter describes these false teachers who are leading people astray. And so what he's wanting to do here in this letter is remind Christians of the truth and to encourage them to think deeply about good truth, good doctrine, to remember it, to guard them against the false teachings that were so prevalent in his day and our day. And now in this short paragraph, it's as if he's giving us a little window into his motivations, his heart for ministry. So let me read verses 12 through 15. He says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities. And remember he's talking about these qualities that he calls the church to, to, to work these things into our lives. To remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to work through this text, and we're going to hang it on this outline. I think this text gives us a picture of the character of Peter's ministry and the content of Peter's ministry. The character of Peter's ministry and the content of Peter's ministry. So let's look first at the the character of Peter's ministry and make application to our lives today as a local church. The first character we see in Peter's ministry that he shows us here is that it's, and I'm strangely encouraged by this, it's repetitive. Peter repeats himself over and over and over again. In fact, he says, I'm going to remind you of these qualities. You've heard it before, and I'm telling you again. The Bible is full of reminders. In fact, if you were to read the Old Testament, you you would be amazed if you were just paid attention to this phrase, remember the Lord your God. It happens over and over and over again in the Old Testament in particular. In fact, there's this time in Psalm 88 verse 12 where the psalmist actually refers to the nation of Israel. He calls it the land of forgetfulness. So that's that's what he describes the people of Israel as. And it's as if this phrase that you hear often that we have gospel amnesia is actually true. The Bible is aware of that. Paul says, listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So Peter agrees with Paul, who agrees with the Old Testament, who agrees with the psalmist, that we are forgetful people, and Peter is wanting to remind Christians and remind us of the simple, clear truths of the gospel because we all suffer from this dreaded disease of gospel amnesia. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers in the history of the church, he was a British Welsh, actually more specifically preacher in London back in the mid-1900s. And in his sermon on this text that I read uh, this week, and I was tempted to just read out loud Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermon to you because it was so good, but then I thought, well, then you'll think I'm just, you know, eating somebody else's old oatmeal and throwing it up to you, and you're like, well, you figured out, Brad, you get, so anyway, I was tempted, but I, let me just, let me just give you one little thought that Lloyd-Jones says about this 
idea of repetition. He says that the fact that we're so forgetful is really proof of the sinfulness, the effect of sin on mankind. And he notes, and I agreed with this, that we tend to forget the things that we want to remember, but we can't forget the things that we wish we could forget. Isn't that a strange thing about just the way our minds work? Man, important stuff I can't remember. But yet, there's these memories of things that I've done or things that have happened to me, and I'll see something, I'll, I'll smell something, or a word will be smoking, spoken, and it will bring that thing to my mind. And it's just all of these terrible memories flood my soul again. Why are all of these bad memories so easily lodged in our hearts, but yet the things that we need to be remember, remembering, we so easily forget? It's just spiritual warfare. It's the weakness and the frailty of the human soul. It's the effect of sin. And because of that, the Bible is not embarrassed to say that you need to hear the same things over and over and over again. I mean, come on. We will watch episodes of the same show over and over and over again, but if a preacher repeats himself, oh my gosh, that's the boringest thing in the world. Can you believe it? This guy's got, he's, it's, it's Thursday's oatmeal he's serving up. I mean, come on. I'm encouraging myself here, by the way, just, just sort of giving myself license to not be creative. The second thing that Peter it, it mentions here as a character of ministry is it's urgent. It's not only repetitive, but it's urgent. It's not, it's not lackadaisical. He's not just holding community services for everybody that's interested in religious things. It's urgent. In fact, Jesus told him that he was going to die, and Peter is here at the end of his life, and he senses that what Jesus told him decades before about how he would die is going to happen soon. He says there that my departure is, is, is likely soon in verse 15. And so Peter has this urgency and and earlier, Tyler read from John chapter 21, where we, we read specifically what Jesus told Peter about the way that he would die. And this is decades before, before Jesus's, this is after his resurrection, before Jesus ascends to heaven. And Jesus tells Peter that you're going to die this way. In, in verses 18 and 19 of what, Peter, of, what, of what Tyler read earlier in John chapter 21, Jesus says, you know when you were young, you went where you wanted to go. You were kind of in control of your limbs, so to speak. But there's coming a day when somebody's going to stretch you out and pull you in directions that you do not want to go. And this was a, a foreshadowance of Peter's death. And although it's not recorded in Scripture, we have reliable historical sources from the first century that tell us that Peter shortly after this, was crucified just like Jesus was crucified. But Peter, as he was approaching his impending death and his crucifixion, said, and legend has it that Peter said, that I don't, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same manner that Jesus was crucified, meaning right side up, but I want to be crucified upside down. And legend has it in first reliable first century sources that that's the way Peter died. And so Peter is approaching the end of his life and he knows he doesn't have much time left and he's, he doesn't have time to play games or to just go through religious motions. He wants to make sure that the people really get it. 
Now, what's the application for us about the urgency we see in Peter's ministry? Well, I think about this personally, pastorally. Now, I don't think I'm dying. Well, I guess, I guess every day you're closer to death, but I don't, I don't think my death is, is, is imminent, although it may be. You never know. But I am, I am, I do feel a sort of urgency about what we do together as a church, that we have a, a, an urgency about, about knowing what God has said, about, about being intentional about living together, about, about working into the fabric of our church, these truths that we go over week to week. We're not just here to do it for the sake of being church people in the South. We're in war. The spiritual warfare is prevalent. The, the world is burning, and God's people need to know what they believe, and they need to be lights. They need to be set like a, like a light on a, on a hill for the world to see. These things are urgent, and we need to be urgent people, not panicking people, but urgent people. And so as I make application of this for my own life, I feel a kind of urgency, and part of this urgency is brought on by just the distractions of our, of our modern culture. I remember a book that came out when I was in high school in the mid-1980s. It's become kind of a famous book that is a critique of our culture. It was written by this, I don't know if he was just an author, a media guy, and his name was Neil Postman. And he wrote a book called, and just the title itself is instructive and true. He said, that the title of the book was Amusing Ourselves to Death, Public Discourse in an Age of Show Business. In this book, he's not a Christian, he's not a believer, but he rightly critiques uh, modern culture. This book was written in 1985, and the point that Postman is making in this book is that American culture has become so addicted to form over content to entertainment over substance, that we've just kind of lost our ability to think deeply and critically and rationally about anything, in particular politics. I mean, just listen to the political speeches of both parties. They are so devoid of anything substantive. It's just entertainment. It's form over content. And, and that doesn't just affect the way we do public discourse in the secular world. It has affected the culture of the church. The prettier you can be, the sleeker you can be, the more awesome, the, the, the better presentation you can have is what people will find more attractive and they don't care about the content, whether or not the treat teaching rings true or not, whether or not it's faithful to Scripture, you just have a bunch of mindless people flocking to religious services where there is a good production put on, but there's no biblical substance whatsoever. And what has this produced? Well, friends, it's produced a nation of heretics and a very weak American church. And Peter is worried that that's going to happen to these people that he's writing to. And pastorally, I, I'm worried that that's happening in our city. It has happened in our city. This was, Postman wrote this in 1985. How much more worse is it now when we have entertainers and pop singers and athletes being the spokesmen for critical thinking in our society? 
And Christians can't really contribute to the conversation because they're flocking to this cute entertainer or that cute entertainer or that sleek preacher who wears tight jeans and expensive shoes and does stupid stuff on stage, all because it makes us feel good. Again, I'm doing self-therapy right now for the third week in a row. Thank you for indulging me. But I, Peter was urgent here. you got to know this. My, the, the time is short. I mean, dear ones, you know, but we have so many military, military people coming in and out of Crosspoint. And one, one ministry, I think, of this church is, is I think we're kind of a, we, we're, we're a great mission-sending church. We have missionaries, actually couples that are being sent out from here to minister to the gospel, for the gospel in faraway lands. And I love that. But I think actually part of our missions program is funded by the Department of Defense unwittingly. I love it. American tax dollars being used for missions as military people come and, and then they go all around the country, all around the world. And one of the burdens I have is that as they look for churches after they've been here for a while is that they understand to look for substance over form. You will find more glory, more truth, more meat, more Bible in some dumpy, dusty little church where the preacher's not cool, where he doesn't wear slick clothes, where the worship team isn't all beautiful, where there's no smoke and lights and all this garbage, but they understand the Bible and they faithfully deliver it and they live together in an intentional way where they're trying to help one another follow Jesus. Look for churches like that, not for churches that have awesome websites. And another thing that this is, this is just encouraged me to do is that just to say, just a, a, like a, by word of maybe repentance and by word of maybe exhortation, is I just, I feel like pastorally, I feel like I need more time with you. Um, I preach for 45, 55, 65 minutes sometimes on a Sunday. <laughs> but it's one hour out of a week. And we do Wednesday night services. We haven't been able to do those recently for this pandemic. But I, you know what? Here's what, here's what I'm going to do. I need more time with you with my Bible open in front of the sheep that I'm responsible for. And so next Sunday night, whoever comes, I'm going to be here at 6 p.m. Any youth parents that are dropping off your kids, stay with me. I'm going to just do a Bible study this fall, starting next Sunday night, we're going to work through Colossians. We're going to spend about an hour and a half, and it'll be full of just prayer and inductive Bible study where we'll stop. You can ask me questions. We'll talk about anything, but we're just going to work through Colossians next Sunday night. I'd love for you to come. There's not going to be any music. There's not going to be any child care. I wish we could do all those things, but we're, I'm just, I just need more time with you. With, with, with the Bible open and you not watching Fox News or CNN or browsing Facebook posting stupid stuff. We need more time in the Bible. I sound like a cranky preacher, and you know what? I am a cranky preacher. <laughs> All right. The third characteristic of Peter's ministry is that he was embattled. Can't you tell? He was embattled. Why is it so urgent, friends? Because we don't live in a neutral world. There are spiritual forces of wickedness that want to pull you out to sea unwittingly. 
And where Peter is going in this letter is he's going to chapter 2 where he's going to talk about false prophets, false teachers that have risen amongst the church. And it was true in the first century, and it's true now. But here's the thing about false teachers, friends. They don't wear shirts that say, I'm a false teacher. You need discernment. And how do you get discernment? By knowing the word of God. And so Peter's ministry and our ministry today, the life of this church, again, it is not quaint, traditional, sentimental church in the Bible Belt. This is spiritual warfare that all of us are in the middle of, and that has been the case for all of God's people since Genesis 3, the fall of mankind. And we, we need to recognize this. Now, there's a danger that we make everything a fight. And that's not a good way to live the Christian life. The danger of being too polemic or too sort of, you know, just too uh, fighting over every little thing, picking a fight over every little issue, making a mountain out of every theological molehill. And that can certainly be a problem. And I think there's a little bit of that that goes on in the Christian world today. But in our day and in our setting, I think the temptation is actually less about making a mountain out of every little molehill. It's really just kind of letting mountains go. I think there's a greater temptation that we have of just being fearful of other people's opinion and not wanting to offend, so not being clear, and just wanting to kind of hold hands with just sort of religious pluralism and sing kumbaya. And that won't help anybody. It's actually, we perceive it to be loving, but really all we're doing when we're like that is we're just really kind of stroking our own fear of man, thinking we're being loving, but we're actually not loving our neighbors by not being clear with the truth of the Scripture. And it's actually not loving people. It's loving ourselves more than them. It's loving our perception of ourselves more than them. And that's not good for anybody. So Peter's ministry was embattled. And finally, what was the content of Peter's ministry? Well, as we see through this whole letter, the content of Peter's ministry was the Word of God faithfully delivered. The Word of God faithfully delivered. That's what Peter cared about. In fact, we'll get into this next week, but just look a couple verses ahead in verse 16 in, in, of Second Peter 1 there. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter's one of the apostles, and he has seen Jesus in his transfiguration on the mountain there. He's seen him during his three years of ministry. And so he's, he's not wanting to preach this kind of myths or self-help principles. He's wanting to preach Christ, and not just his experience, but specifically the word that is written down about Christ. Look at verse 19. And we have the prophetic word. That's referring to the scriptures, more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And so Peter, who has seen Jesus face to face, who ministered with him for three years, who saw him transfigured on the mountain, who saw him in his earthly glory, is saying that I'm actually going to preach the word even over my own experience. And then look at 
what he says there in, in chapter, go to chapter three of Second Peter. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember and look at the content of what he wants them to remember, the predictions of the holy prophets, that's the Old Testament, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. And that's what becomes the New Testament. So what's the content of what Peter is delivering to the people? Not principles or self-help techniques to make them happier, but the word of God, the full counsel of God. That's the content of Peter's ministry, and it should be the content of the ministry of every faithful church and every faithful preacher, and I pray it's the content of Crosspoint for the history of this church. Paul says much the same thing. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-5, through 5, and we are living, and I'm not trying to act like our culture's worse. I mean, every culture's been fallen and wicked and has its own challenges, but we, we are living in verses 1-5 through 5 of 2 Timothy 4. Listen to this. Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That, we're living in that passage. The world has itching ears. Even many who physically would locate themselves in a church and call themselves Christians have itching ears. And Paul here, agreeing with Peter, says that the content of the ministry of the church, of the pulpit, of the pastor, of the people in the pew should be clinging to the Word of God. Let me read you a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones in that sermon that I was tempted to just read out loud to you. This is so spot on. Um, there's actually an app where you can listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones preach, um, and if you're interested, there's hundreds and hundreds of sermons of Martin Lloyd-Jones preaching in London in the mid-1900s. It is, it's spiritual gold dipped in honey. That's how good it is. I mean, it's just, oh, I've probably listened to more Martin Lloyd-Jones sermons than any other person, and this is what he says about this idea of the business of the church. He says, the business of the church and preaching is not to present us with new and interesting ideas. It is rather to go on reminding us of certain fundamental and eternal truths. That's true. Now, this needs to be done. Here's the challenge. Let me just let you into a little bit of my, um, of my, my struggles, is that this can be hard to do. It, you, this is not advocating a kind of rote, dry, boring reading of doctrinal truths. That's not what Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying here. We all understand how, how God uses people to, to think in fresh ways about how to apply old truths. But the point that Lloyd-Jones is making here is we don't wander off onto all these trails and fill our church calendar and fill our church teaching with a bunch of things that don't really matter. Stick to the Word and study the Word 
And here's the onus on the preacher. Be so enthralled with the word that it's fresh on your heart so that when it spills out of you and you're saying the same things over and over again in a fresh way, it spills over into the hearts of the church in a fresh way. He goes on and he drills down. Let me read another quote. This is, this is, this is Lloyd-Jones at his finest. The primary business of the Christian church and of her message and her preaching is not to indulge in vague general statements. (laughs) It is to repeat the centralities of the Christian gospel to remind men and women of the truth of God as it is in Christ Jesus. The world is more liable to forget this than anything else. The world is interested in the general situation, politics, economics, social conditions, the possibilities of another war, and other similar things. The world, therefore, rather delights in these vague general statements that never lead to anything. But the business of the Christian church is constantly to remind men and women of certain things which they constantly tend to forget. And I, you know, these vague general statements that never lead to anything, just, it just makes me think of our current cultural situation and this discussion about ethnic tension in our country and racism. Now, friends, a Christian must be able to say that clearly anybody that has any animus or, or hatred or looks down the end of their nose at anybody else, that that is sin. That if it is not repented of, will cause a person to be under the judgment of a holy God. But the world, how does the world handle this problem that we're facing of ethnic strife? All they can say is that this must change. But they haven't really diagnosed the problem because they don't know what sin is, and they have no solution. It's just these platitudes of just change. And actually, I'm just going in on this because I'm, I'm, I'm the grumpy preacher. Many, many, many of the politicians and many, many of the athletes and many, many of the white politicians are actually just saying that as a kind of signal to say that they are just on your side, but they really don't have any solution. They're just saying it so that they can be on the right side of whatever they think the cultural conversation is. But nobody has any answers because nobody knows their Bible. It's really not that complex. It's terrible. It's wicked. And for any ethnic minorities in this church that have ever suffered any racial uh, uh, bias or or prejudice, I, I hate that. And I'm sorry and I empathize with you. But the answer is not this party or that party. The answer is that we are sinners and that only Christ can change our hearts. But the world can't say that. And so if you're an ethnic minority, what you need is not political power. You need the assurance that Christ is your king and he will work everything that you're facing for the glory of God and for your good. And if you're an ethnic majority, you're a white person, you you don't need to just offer 
this kind of vague general statements that never lead anything, a kind of culture. You don't need to just keep saying you're sorry over and over and over again. That will get you nowhere. It will only make yourself feel better and it won't do your brother or sister who's black or brown any good. What you need to do is root out any racism in your own heart, repent of it, confess it in the context of a local church and work to love your neighbor. That's what all of us need to do. And so Peter says that we need the word faithfully delivered. Friends, this is a great challenge. It's one, listen, let me just, again, before we come to the table, it's one thing to say that the word needs to be faithfully delivered. It's another thing to actually do it. It's, it's easy to preach. It gets amens. Like, who, who's going to disagree with that in Crosspoint? You know, Brad, I don't know. I think we should talk about tiddlywinks every now and again. <laughs> Nobody thinks that. So I can, I can get the faithful stirred up. You know, I can throw red meat to the bulldogs. Preach the word! Yeah! But it gets harder to actually apply the word wisely in the context of a local church. It's hard. And I'm not, I'm not asking for your sympathy here. You, I, I, I'm not. I'm just wanting you to be able to pray for me and the other elders better and, and give you a picture into the heart of ministry. Knowing when and how to speak on secondary or cultural issues is difficult. N- knowing when and how to speak to ethnic divisions is hard. I mean, there's more to be said about these things than what I just said. And, and, and I want to listen to people who have experiences, and I want to, I, I just, it's, it's a complex situation that needs to be wisely discerned from the weird, word of God. And sometimes I don't know what the right balance is on that. I just confess that. A political strife. I, you know, I, I, let me just share my pastoral heart with you. I'm, I'm often flummoxed by many people, Christians, that seem to put way too much hope and get way too excited about politics and conservative politics. That's not where your hope lies. I, I, I also get concerned about people, Christians, younger Christians, who I think have been burned or they're cynical about just the political process, and they tend to sort of more easily adopt maybe supporting politics who promote godless platforms. I mean, friends, the point is, is on the right or the left, there's, there, there, there's, there's sin abounds, and there's, there's no hope in a prince. There's no hope in a president. We need to be wise citizens and think deeply about things and make an informed vote as best as we can on biblical principles. But to get more excited about a political candidate or to think that if this person does or does not get reelected in November is, 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 is going to really affect God's kingdom in some tangible way is to misunderstand the glory of God and the providence of God in humankind. And I don't always know how to address that. And sometimes I really feel like I fall short. And then just not these big things, but, but then this, this, this coronavirus, I mean, and, 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 and mask. I mean, who would have thought that the range of opinions on whether or not we should be wearing masks at church causes more controversy than the doctrine of predestination? I mean, 
I've gotten more grief for our stance on mass from both sides than I have when I preach through Romans 9. <laughs> okay, I didn't see that one coming. But here we are, and here's my point. I, this is not, I'm not chastening you. We're, we're all kind of caught up in this weird cultural vortex, and our heads are spinning. I'm asking for your prayer for myself as the primary preacher and teacher here and for the other pastor elders that have responsibility for preaching and teaching publicly. Friends, I know what the Bible says. I know good doctrine. I think I faithfully understand the scriptures. I often wrestle with how to faithfully deliver it and apply it wisely and winsomely to the people of God. I feel a constant churning in my soul along those lines. And I just, I feel like I, I don't do that well a lot. And so pray for me that God would help me because, because, because we, we don't need doctrine, just good doctrine that just sort of flies 10,000 feet above our heads. It has to land. And it has to get into the weeds of our lives. But we can't stay in the weeds all the time because when you stay in the weeds, you can, you can get, just get so confused that you, you can't see the forest from the trees. And so, so good preaching, good, good teaching, good, good public ministry in the life of churches is, 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 is seeing the glory and dipping down in and coming back up and dipping down in. And do you understand that rhythm? And it's, it's a challenging rhythm to face, to, 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 to wrestle with. And I'm just asking for your prayers on how to do that because I, I don't think I always do that well. So Peter's reminding his people, and I'm reminding you, and the Lord is reminding us. And now we come to the table to be reminded. When we come to this table, we need to be reminded of knowledge. And this is not just rote tradition that we do on the first Sunday of every month, but when we take that bread and we take that cup, we need to be thinking about what they mean. Think about the fact of the doctrine of God's holiness. Why are we even coming to this table? What does this table commemorate? It commemorates that Jesus, the Son of God, had to die for us because God is holy and a sacrifice needed so that we could draw near to a holy a holy God. So when we come to this table, we see the beautiful doctrine and we remember we should know that God is holy and he cannot haphazardly be approached. And we need the sacrifice of God the Son himself before we can even draw near. And we see the doctrine of the sinfulness of man that it didn't just take goats and bulls and pigeons their blood wouldn't ultimately do it. We need the very blood of the Son of God himself on the cross. So when we hold that bread and that cup, we see the holiness of God and we see the sinfulness of man. And we see the doctrine of Christ. We see that Jesus isn't merely just a man, but he is the God-man. He's fully, truly God, and he represents the holiness of God to us. But he's really, truly, fully man, and he represents us to a holy God. That's why Peter says that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. 
And when we come to this table, we see the beautiful mystery of the Son of God, fully God, fully man, died on the cross for us, risen again in victory. And we see the doctrine of our salvation, that it took this sacrifice, that Jesus on the cross, whose body was broken, received the wrath of God for us. He took, he absorbed, he extinguished, he removed, he satisfied the wrath of God, and he turned it into favor. He took our sin on the cross, and he gave us his righteousness. But we need, we need something to happen to us because when we see our sinfulness, we realize that our sin has killed us spiritually. It's made us unable and unwilling to do anything about our condition. So when we see and we understand that Jesus bore our wrath for us on the cross, that's why his body was broken, we understand that the only way that we came to understand this was not because of our understanding, but because God, by his Holy Spirit, made us alive. He took our dead hearts and he gave us a new heart. He opened our blind eyes. He opened our deaf ears. He brought back to life our dead heart. And so as we come to this table, we remember the miracle and the glory of salvation that we were dead and God made us alive. If we see it and believe it and trust in it, it's not because of anything that we have done, but because of God's sovereign grace. And we need to remember that because we're proud and forgetful people. And when we come to this table, we don't just see the doctrine of salvation. We see the doctrine of sanctification. It's not just how we were saved. It's how we live. This bread that we will take is a picture of Christ who isn't just the, the Savior torn for us on the cross, but he's the bread come down from heaven that we daily need. He is the living word of God that doesn't just save us, but it causes us to grow and it teaches us after we're saved how to live live for him so we see the doctrine of sanctification in the cross in the table and we see the doctrine of the future we know that this table is in a sense kind of a a look back and a look forward when we come to this meal we're looking back to the cross but we're also looking forward to the supper the great supper the marriage supper of the lamb and paul says in first corinthians 11 when you eat this meal you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're looking back to the cross and we're looking forward to heaven when we will be with him. These are things that we need to know as we come to this table. And when we know these and we remember these things and we help one another through the week fight to hold on to these things, we make it. God, God keeps us and we make it all the way home. Let's remember these things as we come to this table. If you're a Christian and you believe this gospel, you're welcome to come to this table with us. If you don't yet believe these things that I just spoke about, you should not come to this table. You should not receive one of these cups, not because we are trying to uh, offend you or highlight you in any way or cause you to stand out, but because we do not want you to do something that the Bible says you shouldn't do unless you really believe it, unless you're a Christian, unless you're born again, unless you're part of the family. This is a family meal. So in just a moment, we're going to stand and 
we're going to sing. And, and as believers in this room are ready, they will come to the usher that will direct them to the nearest table. And we will hold on to these cups. And then Tyler will lead us to receive this meal together. You can tear away the top flap. This isn't how we usually do it, but we're doing it in this time of being health conscious in the pandemic. You tear off the top layer and you see the wafer and you can take that when Tyler instructs us to. And then the next layer you tear off and you drink the juice. And when we do that, friends, we are remembering these things. That God is holy, that we're sinful, that Christ died for us, that he is our bread daily, and that he's coming again. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to this table, stir us up by way of reminder. And Lord, uh, help me as I've, I've hopefully been honest with my brothers and sisters here, and not because I'm wanting sympathy, but just because I'm confessing inadequacy that faithfully delivering the word of God rightly and applying it to the life of the church is is. Well, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not up to the task. I'm not. And, and I know that's the case because Paul asked rhetorically in 2 Corinthians, who is sufficient for these things? <laughs> Which means really none of us, but only by the strength that you supply can we even be used in ministry. So I confess my inadequacy, and I, I, I need your help. I need the prayers of these people. The other elders and pastors need them too. And Lord... Give us an urgency. Give us a seriousness, but a, but a kind of joyful seriousness. We don't need to be angry people that are just mad at the world. We, we don't, and if I've come across like that today, Lord, forgive me. But we, we need, we need a, an urgency, a seriousness, a soberness about us. We, we don't need just religious services. We, need, we don't need f- function over form. We need to actually know what we believe so that we can stand in this world. So, Lord, Help us with this. Help us to grow as a church in this commitment. And as we come to this table, Lord, Lord, for your believers in this room, let us see afresh all of these wonderful truths that the gospel opens up to us. That you're holy, that we by nature are sinners, but that Christ has made us one with you. We've been reconciled, we've been redeemed, and we daily feed on your word, and he's coming again. So Lord, stabilize us, fortify us, put steel in our spine as we come to the table. I pray all of this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.